phone like all the cool kids do it. And uh, let us know that you're here and then we can maybe reach out to you and grab a coffee at some point. Before we, uh, I just have one thing I want to say. So that clock cannot start yet because it's not my sermon time. So um, Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to be. That's on page uh, 540 in the blue Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to take that one and bring it home and read it and uh, meditate upon it. Start with the Gospel of John and just ask questions of what you are learning about who God is and what this means for you as a person. So Acts chapter 18, the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. But as you turn there, have you ever thought of this? Have you ever been just so discouraged you haven't thought, you thought that things weren't going the way that you thought. Have you ever thought you can't keep going? Uh, and why am I doing this? I can't seem to, there's no fruit in my labors at all. Have you ever felt like that? And if anyone in here says, no, that's never been me. I don't know, you must be like the super optimist of all time. But as we turn to Acts chapter 18, I think we'll see an, inst an instance where the Apostle Paul was struggling a little bit. And I, and I make this argument because Jesus himself intervenes in a miraculous way to encourage him. And as we can see, we can see how God uses Paul to bring the message about Jesus to the people in this place called Corinth. And this is Paul's first visit to this city, this Roman colony. And we can see the interaction with this church in two letters that we have in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. If you ever want to see how gracious our God is, read 1st Corinthians and then read 2nd Corinthians. God is so gracious to his church and patient as well. So follow along with me in Acts chapter 18 as we go from verses 1 to verse 17. The word of the Lord says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for the, uh, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garment and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house, his house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking, and, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, in verse 12. But when Gallio was pro-council pro of Archaea, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul 
was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal. And they all seed Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let me pray. Lord, we are coming and we gather together to worship. We're continuing to worship through the preaching of your word. Lord, give us hearts and ears to listen, to continue in this worship. And Lord, there is no possible way that I can make this turn out well on my own. So Lord, will you make this turn out well? Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with necessary power and appropriate affection. God, I pray that you use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Amen. Verses 1 to 4, we see a meeting of new co-laborers. Paul has head to Corinth after he has left his previous place in Athens. And we got to ask yourself, what is Corinth? Corinth was actually historically known as a completely and utterly depraved city. It was bad. It was known for its, let's say, its uh, sexual exploits. That's what it was known for. It was known bad within the Greek uh, nation. It got so bad that they joined a, a revolution, and in 146 BC, it was completely destroyed. Its inhabitants were sold off into slavery. There was nothing there until about 46 BC, when Julius Caesar, right before he had his unfortunate circumstance, commanded that there be a new Roman colony being built. So this is a relatively new city at this moment. This is a new city full of Roman law, Roman culture, Roman architecture. And that's a little bit of an understanding of what Corinth was at that time. And as we see, Paul finds two, two Jews named Aquila and Priscilla after searching for them. The, the, the Greek actually there implies this idea that he knew who he was looking for. And they were in Corinth after Emperor Claudius had kicked out all of the Jews out of Rome. So why were the Jews kicked out? And this is a good question for us to understand because we see God's providential hand at work here. You know, history might be a little bit unclear because sometimes we, we look at translations and things and we, we think it's a guy named this, but that kind of looks like Jesus' name, but maybe a spelling mistake, but we don't know. All we know for sure is that the Jews were not getting along with each other and with the people around them to the point that Claudius says, you're out of here. So Priscilla and Aquila pack up their stuff and they begin to move. They move to Corinth. And what's interesting is that either way, whatever the reason is, and it doesn't really matter because we see the outcome of what happens, God will use this event of Claudius kicking out the Jews to move Priscilla and Aquila to a place where the gospel ministry will, will be advanced significantly. So Paul joins them in their trade as he is also a tent maker, and they kind of join together and they make some tents. I have no idea what's involved in making a tent, but that's what they did. 
And he does this to support himself. And he talks about this actually in his letters to Corinth. He actually reminds them in his letters. He says, hey, I didn't come to you asking for anything. I supported myself. And there's a reason why he was doing that. Because he was in the gospel ministry. He was advancing the gospel. He's part of that mission to go and make disciples of all nations. And he didn't want the Corinthians to think that there was some sort of ulterior motive behind him going there. So he was very purposeful as a missionary in Corinth. He went there and he paid for himself to be there. He didn't ask for money from anybody in Corinth at that time. We would actually call this something called a bivocational pastor. I have friends who are bivocational, but he would do this. But the problem with this situation, and we see this in this text, is in verse 4, he was only going to the synagogue every Sabbath. So he would take that one day off, and he would go there and persuade, seek to persuade the Jews and the Greeks about who Jesus is. So he was bivocational, supporting himself, but it also limited his efforts in that gospel advancement. That's why as a church, we, we, we support missionaries so that they're not held back by having to support themselves. They can dedicate more of their time to the proclamation of the gospel. But here we are in verse 4, he goes every season, every Sabbath to go and seek to persuade the Jews and the, and the Greeks who were in the synagogue. And what is he doing during this time? How is he seeking to persuade them? He's trying to show them that Jesus was and is the Christ. He is a long-awaited Messiah though, that the prophets of the Old Testament pointed to and, and longed for. He was trying to show them that Jesus Christ died for the sins and he rose from the dead. He, remember, the resurrection is central to Paul's talking and his proclamation and his message and his presentation about Jesus. Because without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, whatever he said he was before that doesn't matter because it means that he was a liar. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And as we were reminded with this enthusiasm from my brother Dave, he is at the right hand of God, the Father. Without Jesus rising from the dead, it doesn't matter, like I was saying. But he would go to the Old Testament prophets, and he would be pointing all the, to all the promises, all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Like how Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, of a virgin, as we see in Isaiah 7, verse 14. And fulfilled in Matthew 1. That Jesus was the Messiah from the line of David, as we see in Isaiah 11. A shoot will come out from all the stump of Jesse from the roots, and branches will bear fruit. That he was born in, Jer in Bethlehem, like was prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That he healed the sick and that he performed miracles like we see in Isaiah 35. That he suffered and that he was crucified on our behalf like we see in Psalm 22 in the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And he would reason with the Jews who knew the Old Testament. Look, of all the things that Jesus fulfilled. And I think it's a reminder to us no matter how great or ironclad our arguments need or is, you still need the Spirit of God to work within the hearts of those people here. Because if anybody knew the Old Testament, it would have been Paul. He was trained in these things. He would have knew it better than the people he was talking to. 
And their response was just to get angry. Maybe he pointed to Isaiah 53 where it says he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. See, the crucifixion of Jesus is narrated in all four Gospels. And Paul comes back and he points back. Maybe he, he takes time to point how the resurrection was even prophesied in, 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 in Psalm 16. This is important as Paul begins to seek to reason with them. And Paul would declare to them over and over that Jesus is the Messiah, pointing to God's word, reasoning with them, persuading, seeking to persuade them. And this is what we must do ourselves. We need to seek to know how God has shown himself to us in his word so that we may always be ready to give a reason for the defense of the gospel to a people with who, without Jesus, face etern the eternal wrath of God in a place, in a real place called hell. So as we look at this passage, we see a lot. And, and I'm sure it was hard for Aquila and Priscilla who had a rough time relocating. It's not fun being forced to relocate. I'm sure that there were questions. But they would have to trust that God's hand was at work. And this is what we need to see here. God's providence and his sovereignty are on display here as God orchestrates events and histories to bring this couple to this specific place at the specific time to meet the specific person for the advancement of the gospel. There is nothing of waste that happens in our life in God's economy. Not only in Corinth, but we will see next week in Ephesus as well. I don't know where you're at right now, and I'm sure some of you are wondering why some of the many things are happening in your life. But as I read this, I am reminded of the true thing that God says in his word in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God defines good as making us more like Christ? That he would use the circumstances that we are in to reflect greater Jesus. That we would grow spiritually in our walk with God. Aquila and Priscilla were probably wondering what was happening as they packed up the things and moved but they didn't see at that moment how God would use this for their good and also to increase the gospel work and to encourage someone named Paul. You and I have no idea what the future holds. I think something that breaks my brain sometimes is trying to come up with every possibility and seeking to prepare for it. It, it drives me insane, really, sometimes. But we don't know what the future holds but we do worship the one who does. And not only knows the future, but is providential and sovereign in all of it. And we do know that he will use all things for our good. But take some trust in that. God's word tells us over and over and over again, trust me. And God will use the hard time to make you more like Christ and to deepen your walk with him 
And he will also be with you at every step, as we will now see as Jesus encourages Paul and us today. Because in verses 5 to 11, we see how Jesus encourages. So in verse 5, Silas and Timothy finally show up from Macedonia. And this allows Paul to focus on the ministry of the word. Paul and Silas probably had some money with them from, Ma- from Macedonia, and they brought it with them. That enabled Paul to not have to dedicate time to making tents. Now he can dedicate all of his time to the gospel ministry. And it's like gas on the fire. As Paul begins to go out and takes more time, as we see right there, he was occupied with the word. Again, this is a reminder why we support some paid elders and missionaries as well. We saw this in Acts 6 about how important it is for elders to dedicate their time to prayer, the ministry of prayer and the word. And this enabled, this money from Macedonia enabled Paul to do this very thing. And in verse 6, we see how Paul was occupied, how he was devoted, how he was focused with the word. And, and as that happened, as he became more dedicated to that, as he spent more time doing that, the opposition also grew. The Jews opposed him and reviled him. They, the Jews fought against Paul. And, and as he taught of Jesus being the Messiah and how he was resurrected from the dead, and it turned into hurting his reputation. But let me ask you this. As we've been walking through Acts, now we're on chapter 18. We only have a few more chapters left. Have we ever seen the gospel stop? No. The gospel continues to advance. No matter what, geography, opposition, persecution. In fact, all of those things seem to kind of make the gospel grow even more. And the outcome of this opposition and this character assassination is what we see with Paul later. And this is hard because he says, Paul shook out his garment and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. It's almost like Paul's giving up. See, Paul was a faithful watchman. And I was reminded of Ezekiel 33 verses 1 to 9, where describes a watchman who was sounding the alarm. Paul was sounding the alarm, but the people didn't heed his warning. And Paul had faithfully preached the gospel, and now he was hitting this brick wall, and there was no movement forward. So their response for their own, so now they're responsible for their own sin. They have rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah. So Paul says, okay, you're on your own. And if we ever think that Paul is doing this out of some sort of sense of frustration or anger or whatever, that would be wrong because this wrecked his soul. And we see this in Romans 9. In Romans 9, 1 to 5, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and increasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers he says we should never move on because of frustration but at some point with wisdom and discernment we have to say we have limited resources and limited time and we need to move on and that's what Paul does here In verse 7 and 8, you see that this might have been looking like a little bit of a setback, a little bit of a frustration for Paul. 
but Paul moves right next door. This is funny, right? I, I, I read that and I was like, that's very funny. That's humorous. Because he's like, fine, you guys don't want me? He literally walks, I don't know, maybe five feet over and goes, hey, let's, let's do it right here. It's like the guy who sh- uh, sets up shop next to the person who's always been there. And he starts selling the same things. Although Paul's not se- selling the same thing. He's selling Jesus. He's not selling anything, really. But you can see how funny this is in my mind. I was snickering to myself as I read this. But God blesses that as he goes next door to a Gentile worshiper of God, where God not only saves him and his household, but then God grabs hold of Crispus, who is the synagogue ruler. And a synagogue ruler is in charge of setting up all the worship stuff. Who was probably involved in kicking him out in the first place. And God saves him. And not just him, but his whole household. And they believe and they are baptized. And as a side note, so this is a great reminder for baptism. Baptism is a public profession of our faith. It is a commandment by Jesus Christ. If you haven't been baptized and professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please do that. Come talk to myself or one of the elders or Pastor Matt. But it is your faith going public. It is an outward expression of an inward change, which means that, as we see here, baptism is not something that happens before belief. It is something that happens after belief. But we see a great passion here that Paul has. Spurgeon said it this way, the master passion of every Christian is to be useful. There should be a burning zeal within us for the glory of God. And we see that happening as Paul continues to faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And then we get to verses 9 to 10, which says, but receives a, Paul receives a vision from Jesus on that night as Jesus says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. As I was studying this and reading this, I was kind of confused a little bit. Not confused, but I was like, why is this here? And maybe it's because Paul has a pattern. If he hits a wall, if there's no more movement, he kind of moves on to the next city. Maybe God is telling him to stay. Maybe he's a little discouraged from the results of what happened in Athens not that long before. But regardless, Jesus needs to encourage Paul. Super-Christian Paul needed to be encouraged. And I kept thinking about this. Why, Why is Jesus telling him not to be afraid? Why is he telling him not to be silent? Why does he give him these promises And and I look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, which I think gives a little bit of an insight as to the why. Because in Paul's letter to Corinth, he talks about how he came with great fear and trembling. In verses 2 and 3, how he felt dejected, maybe rooted in what has happened so far. But regardless of the fact, he was feeling discouraged. And some commentaries even view this vision as some sort of like a recommissioning from God. And God is definitely encouraging Paul to keep going with the possibilities of hardship of ministry with little fruit. And what just, Jesus does this in a few ways. He says, do not be afraid. Brothers and sisters, 
This is why it's important to read your Bible constantly. Constantly. Because it's when we get into God's word that we see all the many times that God has had to say this to his people. When we open God's word, we come face to face with him, seeing how many times he has come to help his people. When someone tells me that they are never afraid, sometimes I wonder if they're human. Because there's a reason why God has to call people like Joshua to never be afraid. There's a reason why he says, do not be afraid, because we are people who are afraid, and we struggle with fear, and fear often keeps us from doing what we've been commanded to do. And I see people, like I said, like Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, King Hezekiah, Jeremiah, God's people throughout the prophets like Isaiah and Jehazel, to the disciples on the sea of, uh, in Galilee in the storm, to the woman at the tomb, do not be afraid, to Simon Peter, and again we'll see it again with Paul in Acts 27. You know what this is a reminder of, is that if God is at our side, he is comforting us of his providential governance over all things. Victory over evil isn't a maybe it's, a, it's secure. That's why Jesus says to Paul, don't be afraid. When Jesus says something's going to be done, it's not like, oh, we're going to try and do this at our best. No, it's done. Just like how by his word, he said, let there be light. And it wasn't like a gradual thing. It was, there was light. That in Christ, there is help, sustenance in our fight against this world against sin and against the devil. In Christ, there's no reason to be afraid, and we need to be reminded of these things daily. And then Jesus comes and says, go on speaking and do not be silent. And maybe Paul was really struggling with some discouragement. M maybe it was rooted in what he saw in the synagogue. Maybe it was rooted in what he saw in Athens. Maybe he felt weak, useless. Maybe he was questioning his call. Maybe he was tired of debating and reasoning. Maybe he was like, oh, man, I know what the next step is. I'm not going to get beaten or something again. Maybe he was tempted to move on. Maybe the work was going slower than he wanted. Maybe things are harder than he thought they were. Regardless, Jesus takes time to remind him of who he is with these simple words. Do not be afraid, followed by the command to go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? Because Jesus follows up with, I am with you. Jesus adds these words. And Paul, as the Old Testament scholar that he was, maybe he was reminded of Joseph in Genesis 39, Moses in Exodus 3, Joshua in Joshua 1 and 3, Gideon in Judges 6. Maybe what might be even louder was the prophet Isaiah. I love Isaiah, but there's no one who probably had more of a discouraging history because <laughs> Jesus said, or God says to him, go and declare these things to these people, and there's actually going to be no fruit in it at all. Thanks, God. Great. So then we get to Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume 
you. Why not be afraid? Why keep on doing what you've been called to do? Because I'm with you. I am with you. And then Jesus gives another command. He says, no one will attack you or harm you. Followed by this last one, I have many in this city who are my people. God had a plan for the church in Corinth that Paul did not know about. There were still people that Paul didn't know about, but God did. I love how John Calvin puts it. Even though these people might be reasonably counted outsiders, the Lord calls them his own because they were written in the book of life. And we're about to be admitted into his family. We know that many sheep wander outside the flock for a time, just as they are many wolves among the sheep. See, without God's sovereign providential care, Paul's preaching would be absolutely nothing. Paul was just asked to be a faithful witness. It is God who makes it effective. And the same is for us. We can't do anything to save someone. We can't change people's hearts that are idol worship factories. God needs to do that. The Holy Spirit does that. And does that mean we don't do anything? Absolutely not, because God has chosen to use us as his human instruments to bring the conversion of sinners. And that, to me, is mind-blowing. That God would use a, a, a word-fumbling guy like me to go declare the good news of Jesus Christ. He's using you and your faithful proclamation to go call people to himself. And what does this mean for us when Jesus says this? I have many people in this city who are my people. Two things. One is that God's people are from all tribes of all nations. Because remember, uh, this is a Greek, this is a Gentile city. And the second is this, is that this was not only gas on the fire for Paul's evangelism, but it is for us too, because it's a reminder that the work of evangelism is never in vain. Never in vain. So in verse 11, Paul stays to continue to teach the word of God among them. He's discipling them. He's, he's discipling them because he is called to be a disciple who makes disciples of Jesus Christ, teaching them all that he has commanded. So brothers and sisters, I can't stress this enough. If you are struggling with whatever the situation you are going through, you need to remind yourself of who the God you serve is. Memorize scripture. So you can reflect on these things to counter the lies that you keep telling yourself. Stop preaching to yourself a false gospel and start preaching to yourself the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ, these promises that Jesus gave to people are the same for you. In Christ, you are saved from the wrath of God through Jesus' death and substitution. In Christ, we have the promise of God's very presence as the Holy Spirit indwells his people as we partner in the mission to bring the message about Jesus Christ. If God himself dwells in you, how does that not allow you and I to press forward through the hardest of situations? When we know and hold on to God's promises, and let's be honest, sometimes we're holding on to them like white knuckles, right? Like we're just like, like my, when my son was on the drop zone at Canada's Wonderland. 
And I look over at him, he's like, no, 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 no. Right? <laughs> we're all, some of us go through life like that. Maybe we're in that situation right now. But he's holding on to that rail like his life depended on it. Sometimes we're holding on to the promises of God like our life depends on it, and it is. That in Christ, God is with you. God's presence doesn't give us, God's presence doesn't give us just energy, but it gives us protection in the middles of our fears and anxieties and our doubts. Do you see it as you spend time in God's word? Do you see it here? The Bible tells us right here that God's presence casts out fear. And Paul will need this as he spends 18 months in this, as the 18-month period of time kind of comes to an end, as he, people actually come to gather him, trouble is coming, as we see in verses 12 to 17. As Paul continues to be occupied with the word, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. It's amazing the things that we can be united over, by the way. And their accusations to him is that He's doing something that's contrary to the law. He's teaching these people to worship God in a way that's contrary to the law. And it's funny because, well, the Jews don't seem to really understand their own law. But here they bring them to this pro-council, Galileo, on charges of this worship. And Paul is not even given a chance to speak, okay? Remember God's promise. Jesus' promises to him. You won't be harmed. He wasn't even able to speak on his defense, yet God is intervening. We serve a God who keeps his promises. And we see that coming out here. His providential, God is providentially protecting him through the Gentiles. And out of frustration, we see in verse 17, the people grab Sothenes and they beat him. I'm like, well, that's, that sucks. And Galileo doesn't do anything. He looks on as he's watching these people beat him. But why are they beating him? Because I think God has moved yet again. Remember Crispus, who was the ruler, and God saved him. This is why we read our Bibles. Because in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Sothenes is listed as a co-laborer with Christ. God has yet again saved somebody else. Maybe it's not at that moment or whatever. I, we don't know exactly. But we do know that Sothenes, and we assume that he's the same person, is saved. Even though Paul was kept safe, and as we have seen, Paul understands still that there's a cost of following Christ. This promise was unique for this time and for this place. It's not for all of us of all time, for all places. There is a cost to following Christ. But the cost is worth it because Jesus is greater. As we see in Philippians 3, verse 7, for knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, it's worth it all. So what you may ask, what's the big idea? In times of difficulty, trial, and seemingly mundane circumstances, God is with his people guiding them towards salvation and purpose. Isaiah 43, God's words to Isaiah are still as true for us. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. 
And this affects our ministry and even our evangelism. It means don't give up praying for God to save the loved ones simply because God has not worked in their lives as of yet. It means work with a desire to be useful and to make much of God, resting in that God who gives hearts and ears to hear and responds. He's the one that makes our uh, ministry effective. Spurgeon talked about this. You know, Paul may have been discouraged by his ministry and not seeing any fruits, and we may go throughout life not seeing any fruits, but one of the questions is this, are you content with no fruit? And I pray that we work in such a way that leaves the fruit bearing to God, but are never content that there is no fruit. That we are both, that we use both grace and grit. Do our hearts break for the loss? It is ours to break our own hearts if we cannot, by God's grace, break other men's hearts. If others will not weep for their sin, it should be our constant habit to weep for them. Don't think of your work as in vain just because God has not given the fruit to it as of yet. In times of difficulty, trials, and seemingly mundane circumstances, God is with his people, guiding them towards salvation and purpose. When it comes to our lives, are you weary? Are you tired? Are you fearful? Are you anxious? In Christ, God is with you. One pastor put it this way, you often will hear two Christians talk. One of them will say, Oh, my troubles and trials and sorrows, they are so great, so I can hardly sustain them. I don't know how to bear my afflictions from day to day. And the other will say, Ah, my troubles and trials are not least severe, but nevertheless, they have been less than nothing. I can laugh at impossibilities and say they will be done. What is the cause of the difference between these men? The secret is that one of them carries his troubles and the others did not. He doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to a porter how heavy a load may be if he can find another to carry it all for him. But if he is to carry it all himself, of course he does not like a heavy load. So one man bears his trouble himself and gets his back nearly broken, but the other casts his troubles on the Lord. Ah, it doesn't matter how heavy troubles are if you can cast them on to the Lord. The heavier they are, so much the better. For the more you have gotten rid of, the more there is laid up upon the rock of our salvation. Never be afraid of troubles, however heavy they are. God's eternal shoulders can bear them. He who is omnipotent is testified by the re the revolving planets and the systems of enormous galaxy can well sustain you. Is his arm too short that he cannot save or is he weary that he cannot hold you tightly? Your troubles are nothing to God for the very clouds are the dust of his feet. How much would that even affect our witness if we learn more to cast all of our fears upon the feet of Christ? In times of difficulty, trials, and seemingly mundane circumstances, God is with his people, and he's guiding them towards salvation and purpose. 
God does not abandon his people. We have a promise-keeping God who has made the promise to be with us in the heat of the battle. He is a victorious captain. Let us cast all of our worries upon him. Let us pray.